0: Welcome to the Paragirl Podcast, this is Jared Pickney. and today I'm joined by my good friends, Derek House, who is a rider care representative for specialized bicycle components, and Dr. Taylor House, who is a pediatric nephrologist, did I say that right? Nailed it. Or a uh, kid's kidney doctor, is that?
1: Equally correct, yes, <laughs> well done.
0: So let me just start here. I want to issue, uh, Derek, I want to issue you an apology. Thank you. Because we had a podcast recently with Dr. Zeke Schatz and I brought up a memory where we played a kid from Osceola who I'm pretty sure had no bones in his hands. And we talked about this together and I had said in the podcast that we were doubles partners and we played that game together. I don't think he disputed that. I'm pretty sure he was like, yeah, cool. Like, that's that's correct. I then found out a couple of days later that um, that was incorrect information. Correct. Yep. That I was not a doubles partner with Zeke.
2: Nope. Me and you. Whole year long. You and me. Mm-hmm.
0: And when you said that, I remembered. Uh, you're absolutely right. So uh, I'm sorry that I did not give you credit for that. Um, and Zeke... Um, I'm sorry that you didn't uh, tell the truth about that one. Oh, I'm sorry that and you didn't. And so, yeah. and so, it an apology. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to clear the air. I didn't want there to be anything between us. I do appreciate all that you did for our our tennis team. Yeah, back then, man, it thanks. was really special times that we had together that I'll never forget yeah, again. It was,
2: it was
1: great I mean, to sure. nail home his frustration. You said he was the strong and silent type, and we're in Madison, Wisconsin, driving in our car, listening to the podcast. There was an outburst from Derek side like, of what? the car. Yeah, that wasn't Zeke. That was me. So just to really drive home the point of how upset he was. So
0: let me ask you this: Do you remember that?
2: Oh, absolutely. Pillow hands.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, am I exaggerating? <laughs> not at all. Okay. Not at all. It's not an exaggeration. No. Here's the thing. And if, and if people listening to this feel like I'm making fun of this uh, this uh, young man, uh, I'm not trying to make fun of him. Yeah. I really just didn't know any other way to describe what the experience was like 100 percent. so um yeah but so we obviously go way back we played tennis together we hung out together in college uh eventually you begin to date taylor that's how i met you did y'all meet in the college ministry how did that i don't even know how y'all met
2: taylor's better at telling the story than i am
0: <laughs> yeah tell me that story
1: <laughs> okay so both of our moms worked for the same pediatrician here in town. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the pediatricians is doctors Zeke's mom. Sean, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the other doctor. One of the other doctors. go back to Zeke. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had gone to prom with somebody as, I don't know, a sophomore in high school. Okay. And um, my mom was very excited to receive those prom pictures. And I got ghosted by the person before I ever got the pictures. Oh. But, you know, she had paid her $40. Okay. And so she was intent that I was going to retrieve said pictures um I also spent a lot of summers working up at the doctor's office so like you know filing charts etc yeah. and um basically like as my mom is like you know telling me you got to get these pictures you got to get nagging me about it and I'm like oh mom I don't want to see him he's not texting me back or whatever <laughs> and MSN messaging me I don't know um Derek's mom chimes in and she's like I have a great idea for how we can get your pictures back. I'll call Derek. He can pick you up. He can take you to this place where this guy works. You can make him jealous. Like, say you want your prompt. <laughs> you can get your pictures back. I think That's Phyllis great. was a much wiser woman than I actually <laughs> gave her credit for in that moment. So <laughs> Derek comes up to the doctor's office and picks me up. N- mind you, never speaks a single word to me while we're in the doctor's <laughs> clinic. Not a word. And he uh, drove—I don't know, like a F one fifty or so. He always like had a you hi. know. Red. He, he valued that Red truck head. a lot, yeah. And it was a bench seat, mm-hmm. so we each got in on the side of the truck. And the first and basically only thing he said to me was, "You should probably sit in the middle of the truck to make it look more believable." Look out. He says it's good the move. only line only he, line he ever, line used. ever used. Good move. Dang. It worked.
0: Look, <laughs> look at you! I never knew that part of the story.
1: So we Keep go. Going. We go to the business. He. Then, because I'm sitting in the middle, then he says, I'll let you out on my side, you know, to, like, make it more believable. So, he opens the door, helps me down. Just I He's just serving you. He's just trying to help uh, you yeah, out. Yeah, totally. Selfless. I go into the store and say, like, hey, I need my prom pictures. And, of course, you know, this person is like, well, I don't have your prom pictures here. I'm like, okay, well, my mom really wants them. And I'm going to leave the the, the store. And um, one of our like actual mutual friends worked there, and so she stops me as like I'm about to hit the door, and says, "Hey, Taylor, is that Derek House you're with?" Oh. So you know, I like exaggeratedly flip my hair over my shoulder, <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah." It is Derek House. <laughs> and you should have
0: heard the conversation we just had on the way over here.
1: I hit the door. He opens up the truck, gets down on his side, helps me back up in on his all side. Right. I sit in the middle again. We don't speak to each other the entire ride back <laughs> to <course>. the doctor's <laughs> clinic.
0: Because <laughs> you already used your one line. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> Nothing else to say. The rest is history.
0: <laughs> wow. And all this time, I thought maybe I could somehow take credit for y'all meeting. But Mm-mm. no, not at all. Okay. That's a way better story, though, mm. than that you met at crazy. Yeah, yeah. Way better story. So you are, we graduate obviously from Paragold. you graduate from Marmaduke, Taylor. Um, Did I dream this, did you make a 36 on your ACT? Is that a lie? 35, 34, 33? What did you make?
1: What was the scale then? 36 I was, is the I was top. one one point under the perfect score.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Um, boy, Not as impressive. we'll cut that out.
1: I've taken a lot of standardized <laughs> yeah. tests since yeah. <laughs>
0: 35, 18, which is probably around where I was. What's the difference? What's the difference? And so, okay, so you obviously, uh, you I, if I remember correctly, when you came out of high school, you wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. I, that, like, you were pretty set on that, which is incredible, because a lot of people, I think, are like, yeah, I want to be a doctor, and then it's like, you'd take four classes, and like, I don't want to be a doctor, <laughs> you know, and so, uh, graduate from Arkansas State, mm-hmm. um, and we're still in good contact, uh, part of the same church, all that, through college, still hung out, and then you go to Little Rock um, for med school right okay so i'd love for y'all to kind of and we still were a little bit in contact then but it wasn't too long after that that i feel like we kind of lost touch and so catch me up on kind of how you got to where you are today which is derek you're working for specialized and you're obviously doing the work you're doing and you're in madison wisconsin so whoever wants to to start taking the lead on that go for it
2: yeah i guess i'll start um so where how i got to where i am today i actually owe it to you jared uh yeah, that's we go. good. There we Finally, go. somebody give me so, credit for so, something. About about this time every year, Jared sends me and a couple of other people the same picture of uh, <laughs> us going mountain biking. Um, that was probably my first time on a bike as an adult.
0: I didn't realize that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then...
0: You were, by the way, the only person who looked, they were dressed appropriately.
2: Maybe not. Maybe okay. not, but whatever. Oh, that's another day. Um, but then you and I, I met you down in Jonesboro, mm-hmm. and I bought my first bike from Gearhead. Which was a specialized hard rock a hard rock. Yep. Black one. I remember yep. that we had coffee before and then when they opened up, we went in there. Um, so yeah, so it all sort of, it's your fault that I am where I am. So there okay. we go. That's
0: that's great. Yeah. Man. So, um,
2: whenever we moved to little rock, um, I didn't really know where I was at. I was a firefighter here in, in Jonesboro yes. before we left, uh, moving down there. I thought I would, you know, use my, my college degree, do some personal training. Um, but then, um, you know, that kind of didn't, didn't work out. So I taught at an allied health uh, profession in college for about nine months. Um, And then our schedules, Tyler's and I, like, didn't really meet up. So I wanted an eight to five kind of job or nine to five, I guess, would Mm -hmm. be what it was. So I found a bike shop job. So doing what? Like mechanic type stuff? A little bit of everything. Uh, When I first started, I was kind of the the salesperson Um, would would greet people and kind of show them bikes and everything like that. As time progressed, then I um, I learned, you know, how to mechanic and how to build bikes and all of that stuff. So, I kind of, like, did, I did everything there. Okay. Um, so, that was kind of what I did for the whole time we were in, in, in Little Rock. Yeah. Um, and then, once we moved from there, we went to, to Seattle, which I guess we can get that later. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a mechanic at, at a shop there um, for, um, we were a storefront for a brand itself called Public Bikes, a little small company. Um, and I was, like, the lead mechanic there and, and did all the stuff for them, built all the bikes. Um, and then that place shut down, and I started working at a uh, bike shop, the largest shop there in Seattle. Is uh,
0: that where you met, like, David Matthews? Yes,
2: da- David. Ugh, uh, don't
1: get him started.
2: So, so Dave <laughs> Dave Matthews uh, goes by David uh, and Greg Cycles in Seattle. He lives there around the corner from the shop, and we come in occasionally. Uh, so I met yeah, met him there and, um, you know, worked with him and then Macklemore. Ben Haggerty also came in his
0: real name. Oh, not well, Macklemore.
2: Yep. Also came into the shop. Um, he bought a, a bike for his daughter. Did they, you talk to him? Uh, I, I, did not talk to him. Uh, at that time I was a, a sales manager there. So I had, you know, employees that, that talked to him. So I, like, you know, didn't want to interfere. Or be it's like, really like incredible to me. And
0: we'll talk about sales probably later. Cause I, I mean, one of the things I want to talk about with y'all, and we t- we've talked about this before, but why wouldn't you have you on Let's talk about the power of listening and how that plays into your job and obviously your job, uh, Taylor, it's incredible to me that you really were, like I said to Zeke, the strong and silent type. And then, like, you know, you're with her, you say one word, and you go from that to being in sales, and then you oversee uh, mm-hmm. a team in, in mm-hmm. sales. And mm-hmm. so how did that – did you just kind of get thrown into that, and all of a sudden you realize you were actually decent at it?
2: Well, yeah, it's just you, you learn the process of, of, of asking a question, listening to the person, you know, what they want. Um, so you ask qualifying questions, you know, what, you know, what kind of bike you're looking for, what are you thinking, what are you planning on doing? And then you, you know, you lead them and guide them through the process just by listening to what they're saying and what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, while it, it, it does take some kind of talking. Um, it's mostly listening to kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, get the needs of of what the the person wants. So,
0: yeah, it's really good. So you're working at the bike shop there in Seattle. When did you start working for specialized?
2: So when the, when the pandemic hit, um, bike sales boomed. It was, it was crazy. You know, the shop I was working at, we usually had about 2000 bikes on hand. We got down to 30. Um, and at that time, you know, specialized realized how things were, were blowing up and, um, the three people they had, uh, doing, doing my job. Um, you know, they couldn't handle it. It was, they were months behind on answering you know questions and things like that. Um, so they decided to open it up to remote work. Um, and I had a friend I um, actually worked with at the Jonesboro Fire Department, went on to work for Specialized as well. Um, he kind of like, hey, they're hiring remotely. You should, I should apply and, and, and take a look at it. So I did. And with all my background, my three shops and, you know, managing one of the largest ones um, in Seattle, or the oldest ones um, as well, um, you know, kind of gave me the what I needed for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just interviewed and and been there for a year and a half now almost so
0: and if you're like if somebody goes to specialized.com mm-hmm. is that it like if someone is con- like they're they're wanting to talk with someone about a bike like is just the right size or right fit or does this what I need like you're one of what three or four people that yeah, there's, there's a chance they're going to connect with
2: yeah there's about four people of us that are, are doing the manning the online stuff so yeah, if you go to specialize.com, it's either going to be me or, or three or three or four of my other, um, colleagues.
0: Yeah. And just put in that coupon called Pergo podcast. Uh, and wow. you get yeah, set yeah. Off. yeah. Yeah. Let them know you heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let them know where he sent you. Right. Right. So you're bouncing around because you're following Taylor, like where you're going with your schooling. Right. So yeah. you're, you're, at, what was med school? Like, let's start there in little rock. Was that like, Whoa, this is more than I thought. Or is like, you're a smart girl and you're a huge overachiever. You're like, this was actually not as hard as I thought.
1: I guess it's somewhere in the middle. I didn't totally know what to expect actually. Like even though you do a lot of shadowing and you like, you know, try to do everything you can to ensure that the career that you've chosen is the career that matches the best for you. Mm-hmm. In reality, like there's just a lot of it that you're not going to know until you actually are in it and you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It was a little bit of both. Like there was a I had this history of like academically being successful and mm-hmm. I was also in a very different environment than I'd ever been in. So like if I didn't say that I had like extreme imposter syndrome during medical mm-hmm. school, it would be a complete lie to tell you. Um, yeah. What do you
0: mean by that? Extreme imposter syndrome? Well,
1: I mean, I think a lot of medical students probably feel this way, but this idea that like someone is going to walk into the lecture hall of like 200 of, you know, very, very bright people and be like, you, we finally figured out this. You're out of ah, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's this
0: idea of like, do I really belong yeah, here? Yeah,
1: totally, totally.
0: Because you're around somebody who's just bright people. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but you know, I kind of kept the same habits that I had before, and that that paid off very well for me. And so I had a lot of success there in medical school.
0: Did you know? Is it? It's in med school. You have to decide what path you're going to take, right? Like yeah. And so did you know immediately? It seemed like it seemed like I remember you talking about like pediatrics early on.
1: Yeah, I really thought that I wanted to do pediatrics, um, and, you know, it was the the very last, so Zeke talked a little bit last week, like the first two years of med school, you're really intensively in the classroom, so you're trying to learn everything about how a healthy body works, and then how uh, disease processes can affic- afflict the body, and what medicines to use, and how those medicines work, so just crash course in all of that in two years then you switch to clinical rotations. So in third year, when I started doing my clinical rotations, my pediatrics rotation, I actually set it up so that it was the very last one. And my idea was that like, I want to make sure that that's what I want. So I'm going to go into each one before that saying like, okay, I'm really going to be a surgeon or I'm really going to be an internal medicine doctor or whatever. And if I got around and like had truly made that full faith effort with every single rotation and I got to pediatrics and then that was the one, then I knew it like that, you know, Mm -hmm. affirmed my decision basically. And there were several things that I liked along the way. um, But at the end of the day, like that, I knew that about myself going into it and pediatrics was definitely the best match for me.
0: So when did you know that you wanted to specialize in kidneys?
1: Oh, not until residency actually.
0: Okay. And it was residency in Seattle? Yes. Yeah. What, what, uh, what was the hospital or whatever that you worked with?
1: Uh, Seattle Children's Hospital, and then it's affiliated with the University of Washington.
0: Okay, so I don't know a lot about that world. Was Seattle, how did you end up there? Like, was that something you really wanted, or was it more like, I don't have a choice? That's some place to go? Like, mm,
1: Good question. So, when you are finishing medical school, you have to actually have to go through something called a match. So you go and you submit your application to the specialties and the different programs around the country that you'd be interested in attending that if they invite you for an interview, you come out and interview. And then at the end of your interviews, you actually make a rank list of like, okay, I went to 15 places. Here's my number one through 15 choice spots. The programs do the exact same thing with the medical students who really? they've interviewed. Yeah, it's wacky. Wow. That all goes into a computer. There's some sort of algorithm and on match day it spits out, where all of these medical students in the country are going to go. Wow. And you okay. hope and pray that you get, you know, one of your top choices, but you, you never totally know. Um, but thankfully, we really hope to land in Seattle and that is where I match too.
0: Okay. Excellent. Zeke talked about this a little bit, I think. And so some of that match is, I mean, it's pretty competitive and I didn't realize that like, but um, so they're looking at. Test scores and all these kind of things, right? Grades. Yeah, it depends
1: kind of a little bit on your specialty too. So some specialties, like Zeke was talking about, are notoriously more competitive up front. Okay. And then some things that may be less competitive up front, then specific programs become really competitive. So pediatrics generally is not one of the top competitive fields. Mm. And when you start to look at really big children's hospitals like the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Boston Children's, Seattle Children's, those kinds of programs, those are actually quite competitive.
0: Okay. So you get to Seattle, you don't really know what you're going to do yet in pediatrics right
1: correct I knew I wanted to specialize like general peds didn't quite seem the right thing for me okay which was part of the reason to be at such a big program where there was going to be a big academic influence and I would have a lot of exposure to different specialties but nephrology was like not on my radar at all
0: so how did that happen how did that how did kidneys fall on your radar
1: yeah The things that I started to see that I really loved in residency were that I really liked being able to take care of the sickest of the sick kids in the hospital. I loved the Mm -hmm. complexity and the intensity of those interactions. So I first really thought I might want to be an ICU doctor. But then every time I would get ready to help discharge a kid from the ICU and they would go to the regular team. I was always kind of left wondering like, but what happened? Like Mm -hmm. when they go outpatient or like Mm -hmm. what, what's left after Mm -hmm. this? So I realized I wanted that intensity of really complex medical care, but I also wanted the continuity Um, and nephrology is actually really beautiful that way because I definitely get to take care of the sickest of the sick kids in the ICU. And then as I get to, you know, serve in their care, they get better. And then I get to meet them on the regular floor and I take care of them in clinic. And oftentimes I'll have years long relationships with these families. That's super cool. It's really, really rewarding.
0: So what kind of, like, what is the, I guess the most common issues that you're seeing with kids who have kidney issues? Because like... I'm I'm hearing that and I'm like I don't know if I've ever known a child that has a kidney issue mm. and so like apparently that's more common than I think or you would have a job so it's like so what is that
1: Yeah, I mean, it is pretty um, niche, so I will say that. Like, I feel like it's pretty common, but the reality is it's not actually that common. So I'm really lucky to be able to do something I love that way. But the more common things you would think of would be like kidney stones, um, high blood pressure. Actually, as kidney doctors, that's much more commonly managed by us, as opposed to like heart doctors or regular doctors and peds, Um, blood in your urine. Those are kind of the big ones.
0: Okay. All (laughs) right. So your day-to-day looks like what for you?
1: So I actually do about a third of my time as a, as a doctor, like clinical medicine. And then like,
0: are you going to the hospitals and seeing people or like you have like a clinic and people are coming to you? both depending
1: on the week and then the other two-thirds of the time I spend doing research so if I'm on call that means I'm like seeing all the kids on in the hospital on my team um, or the ones that I'm getting consulted on and then if it's not an on-call day then maybe I'm just doing clinic and that's like a pretty small fraction of my time of that like one-third and then the other two-thirds I actually do research um, that's looking at ways that we can improve quality of life and quality of care for kids with kidney disease
0: okay so how would you fall into that
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, As in residency, similarly to how you are in medical school, and you have to kind of rotate through these different things. I was in pediatrics. So everything I did was caring for kids, but you still sort of rotate through like the different specialties in pediatrics. And one of the rotations that I did was palliative care. Um, And as you sort of went through these other specialties, everybody, of course, is serving families to the very best of their ability. But what I saw that was different in the palliative care team was that they were, they really had the skills to be able to connect with families on a different level. And the way that they served those families was, was truly holistic. You know, it wasn't just the vacuum of their kidney disease or their heart disease or whatever. It was about their entire life. Mm. So as I came into fellowship, I really didn't you know, have this idea of sort of integrating palliative care. And then like the very first week I'm on call as a fellow, which is terrifying. So you, I did my like four years of med school, three years of residency. Then for me, it's three years of nephrology fellowship. That first week, one of the nurses in our dialysis unit calls me and says like, oh, this teenager is here today and they don't want to do dialysis. And actually they say like, they don't want to dialyze anymore at all, period. Mm -hmm. And In that situation, like, to not dialyze would equal death. So, like, this young adult was coming in saying, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. And so, you know, other than the, like, holy crap, like, where do I go from here (laughs) as this, like, brand-new fellow, the other kind of question I had in my mind was, like, and that I asked the nurse was, does our palliative care team see this patient? Because this seemed like a perfect, you know, match. And the response I got back from the nurse in the dialysis unit who was completely well-intentioned was, Kids with kidney disease don't die. Why would they see palliative care?
0: Because is that typically just an old person type, like or like a, a terminal illness type deal?
1: There's a lot of conflation of what is hospice with what is palliative care. And hospice is traditionally care that's provided at the end of life. But palliative care, actually, like that entire word means to alleviate suffering. So ideally, palliative care is something that's instituted at the time of diagnosis of a chronic, life-limiting, or life-threatening illness. And the whole goal here is to minimize suffering and really make it so that these kids can flourish in spite of the really challenging circumstances they encounter.
0: And you had to go back to school to learn that, correct?
1: Yeah, so during fellowship, so that's a three-year period where you're doing just, like, just focusing on kidney disease. That was me just focusing on pediatric nephrology. I got my master's at the same time, and then I also did a clinical certificate program in palliative care.
0: It's really bizarre to me that they don't teach that in, like, as a basic just component of your, your, you know, in school. Like, it's just like, if you're going to be a doctor, like, it just seems like that should be absolutely foundational, like right yeah. alongside all the, the, you know, physical stuff. And so I was surprised when you told me that last night, when we were talking that that was something you had, you had to go back and, and learn separately. Um, I, I
1: think the culture is shifting. Like things are trying to move that way as our technology advances, like people are living longer lives, but what, has kind of been lost is the emphasis on not just living longer, but living well. So I think that's starting to come along, but there's just so much to absorb in medical school. Like the analogy people always use is it's like trying to take a drink of water from a fire hydrant and that's like a very good example of how you feel.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would imagine. So (laughs) I think this will get back some to what even Derek, I want to, I want to ask you, but I'll start with you, Taylor, um, just to focus on what we were just talking about with You talked about, like, alleviate suffering. Like, you know, a big part of that is, I guess, meeting people where they are. And I'm curious, like, obviously when people come in, you come across people they have a big need, right? There's something that they're wanting. There's something they're needing. um, And you don't always deliver the best news to them. Um, What have you learned in how to care well, for other people who clearly are wanting good health and and they want to be made whole and healthy and all those things. Like how do you meet them where you are, like where they are? How do you deliver some of this news and kind of like care well for them in that process?
1: One thing I will say that I love about pediatrics too, is that it's, you know, I'm not just serving one person really in that interaction. Like I'm serving an entire family. So I have to think about that kid and how old they are and what is their like developmental stage, and their parent, their caregiver too, who also needs this information. So really trying to tailor what I'm saying and how I'm doing that in a way that meets both of those needs, mm. um, because kidney disease is not something that happens in a vacuum. Like it doesn't just happen to that kid. Mm-hmm. Like it happens to their whole family, their whole community sometimes. Mm. So the things I think that I have learned are, you know, really trying to. Um, Acknowledge that there's a power differential, honestly, because I come into an interaction and I know all of this stuff about kidney disease and maybe they've never heard anything about kidney disease. So really trying to make myself less to be able to serve them. So I do that first by just trying to understand where they are. Like you're saying, say that again,
0: you make yourself less by trying to serve them. What do you mean by that?
1: I think, um, well, in really basic ways, whenever I talk with a family, I never stand up. I always sit down. I'm always sitting somewhere and I always lower my stool so that I'm at a level lower than them. So I'm never looking down on them. They're always yes. higher than I am. Yeah. Um, and I try to do the same thing with kids. So like when I walk in a room, I always crouch down and meet the kid, mm-hmm. like if they're a toddler or five year old or whatever, mm-hmm. um, to just physically put ourselves on that mm-hmm. same level. I also try to convey to that parent that like, yeah, I know a lot about kidneys, but I don't know anything about your kid. You're the expert in your kid. Mm -hmm. So that it can be a partnership of like, here's what I'm expert in. Here's what you're expert in. Let's make this better together. Mm -hmm. So I think it's both like the literal and the metaphorical, of like trying to make myself a little bit less um, Mm -hmm. while still recognizing the, you know, expertise that I have in the way that I can hopefully serve them. So I start, I sort of start there and like asking, what have you heard? Like, help me know where I need to start. What have
0: you heard is in, like, uh, about your kid's condition?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Because that can be incredibly variable depending on if I'm meeting somebody in the ICU or in the clinic. Um, And maybe this is something that they're super stressed about, and I think it's actually like, oh, this isn't a big deal. Like, we don't have to worry too much about it. Or maybe Uh, the opposite happens sometimes. So it helps. It really gives me a sense of where we're starting from. Yep. And then that also helps me to know what kind of information they need. So once I know what, it, what the information is that I need to share, then the next step that I always go through is, can I can I share this with you like I literally will ask the families for permission would it like, be what okay do you say? If can I, talk I share
0: them? what with you like what are you saying can I share
1: if it's a what I would consider serious news so like maybe this is a new diagnosis and they've heard a little bit but they don't have all the information that they need um, then I just ask permission to you know I have some serious news that we need to talk about would now mm. be an okay time for me to do that mm. is now okay
0: mm. And then once you deliver some of that serious news, like what have you learned from, and this is always the topic that I'm interested in, just because of the world that I'm in. I think like everyone experiences grief in this world. Like you cannot not experience loss and, and grief. So how do you help families who are experiencing, um, yeah, a tragedy, experiencing grief, a loss, even if it's not even yeah. necessarily a loss of a life in that moment. Sometimes it is that. Sometimes it's just a loss of like my healthy child. Yeah. Like my child's not going to be healthy again. Like, Aspects
1: so, of their childhood. I mean, Uh, like I've had a mom describe to me once that her kid who was on dialysis, we have to limit so many things that they're eating or drinking that he was so limited on how much water he could drink every day that she said, I can't take him to a pool party anymore because he's like an alcoholic. If he gets around water, he tries to drink it. He would try to drink the pool water. Like those are the things we're asking of families. Yeah.
0: So what do you, how do you meet him there in that sorrow? I'm asking that because people listening to this are going to, This is going to be something that we all need to learn from, and you've done the research, you've looked into this. Um, Yeah, whenever someone's going through that, they've just heard bad news, what do we do?
1: Yeah. One of the things that was really helpful to me as somebody who thinks, like, very analytically (laughs) as a kidney doctor is to recognize that there are truly two parts of our brain, and they can't really operate at the same time so we have like our slow analytic Mm -hmm. brain Mm -hmm. like that turtle brain that like processes and takes in information and figures out how to what to do Mm -hmm. with it that makes sense of it and then we have like that fast brain that's all about our emotions and we're responding and that's when we're kind of like in the spiral and your like slow turtle brain can't take over and can't process information when you're in that like fast brain emotion kind of fight
0: (laughs) or flight type stuff exactly
1: so I know when I give some serious news then what I'm expecting is that I know there's going to be emotion that comes back at me and I can't expect to meet that emotion with more information because that information is not going to go anywhere. Uh, That's interesting. It's It's can't
0: meet that emotion with more information. Totally. So what do you meet it with if you can't meet it with more information?
1: More emotion. (laughs) Acknowledging that emotion. Um, so, you know, it may be anger, it may be sadness, it may be anxiety, like, you know, all of these different emotions you could think about if you heard something really scary about your own child's health and just like calling it out, saying like, this is really hard. I can only imagine what you're going through. God, you have been like such an incredible parent. I've seen you here every single day in this ICU. You know, one of those wow. sorts of statements yeah. that acknowledges, like, how difficult this is so that we can move through that emotion together to ever be able to get to the point where now I can finish giving you the information you need now that you're in that so, spot.
0: I mean, that is so opposite to what we tend to do in our culture, yeah. you know, which is like we see our kids freaking out. Like, yeah, yeah. Right now, my kids are struggling. Like, my, my daughter's had a bad day at school yesterday. You know, like, the temptation is to meet her emotion with logic, and and almost talk her out of why she shouldn't even be feeling what she's feeling and then to explain to her and, and fix her, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like I'm going to fix this by showing you how there's a better way of thinking about this thing yeah. that you're feeling and it usually doesn't go well, Yeah, you know? Um, so you're talking about empathizing, mm-hmm. like you're helping feel. And, and, and I want to come back to that, but Derek, like this is where, and you and I were just talking yesterday, um, even in your, your, your job is so different than hers mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but there is a similarity there with even people who are calling in, uh, whether it's to complain about something or like, talk to me about that because there is an element, isn't there in your own work where you're meeting people where they are, you're trying to empathize with like their own needs, what they're feeling, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. So in my, in my job, it's, it's nice to be able to have Taylor, um, to, to listen to what she's going through and what she's learned. Um, I can take a lot of that and and deal with some of the the riders or the people that I'm I'm working with. Um, it could be from anywhere from you know a broken broken part or or, mm-hmm. or item to you know being upset with the retailer mm. or you know not having what they need. So being able to to empathize and and not just sympathize with the the rider is 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 important for my job to mm-hmm. to make sure that that I help them the best at what they need, not what you know what I think they need or anything like
0: that. And why is that so important? This could be for either one of y'all. Um, why is what you're talking about empathy, right? Like why is that so important? And by the way, if anybody here has an Apple phone and you've ever called, you're gonna you're gonna notice this now. Apple's They're pretty brilliant at how clearly they've trained their people to do this because you can call Apple and you can say, "Um, I don't know why, but my screen keeps freezing up when I open up my text message app or whatever. And they'll say, oh, that is so frustrating. I'm so sorry. Like, I I would hate if that was happening. They they will try to to identify some sort of emotion. Like, oh, I'd be so angry about that if that was happening to me or frustrating. That's what they're doing, right? And so they've they've been trained to do that. Why is that so important? To what they're talking about, Chris Voss, who is a um, he was a negotiator for the FBI for twenty five years. He calls it labeling. So you're able to label their emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that? Why does that matter?
1: You're driving connection. So when you're having, when you're creating this display of empathy, then you are creating a connection between you and that person. Mm. I see you. I'm here with you. You know, I'm not looking down. We talked about this Brene Brown video on YouTube mm. that I love yeah, where she yeah, talk talks about, about how, you know, sympathy sees somebody down in the pit and it looks down on the ladder and says, like, ooh, yeah, it's good down there. Like, you want a sandwich? <laughs> and empathy instead climbs down the ladder and it sits with the person who's there in the dark pit of despair and says, Gosh, I don't even know what to say. I'm just so glad that you told me. Mm. So you're you're driving that connection and you're you're sitting with somebody in that moment. You're you're bearing witness to whatever it is that they're going through
0: and is that a skill that we have to learn or is that like like I feel like we're really bad at that yeah. really bad at that like like why is like why do we struggle so much with that I mean if you
1: I think it's um, well at least in medicine I'll tell you why we struggle with it um, we think that one I think Doctors are fixers, so in general, and probably Mm -hmm. us as humans, we want to sort of fix things. And maybe it doesn't feel like fixing something if you're just acknowledging, like, "Yeah, this is really crummy." Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily on the front end feel like I've fixed anything. Mm -hmm. So I think a little bit of it is that that we're so like task oriented and driven and trying to create solutions without recognizing that like maybe this doesn't need a solution. Maybe it just needs you Mm -hmm. know a a human connection. Mm Um, So I think it's partly that. And then I think there's also this idea that what I've heard other kidney doctors say to me is like, I'm not a psychiatrist or I don't have time for this. (laughs) Like, that either I don't, you know, I feel like I am getting into something that I'm not skilled enough to deal with or that I'm going to open a can of worms that, like, I just can't deal with this right now. And the reality, at least in medical encounters, is that actually whenever patients receive displays of of empathy from their clinicians, those visits are shorter. (laughs) You would actually save time as a doctor with more displays of empathy.
0: Why is that? Why is it shorter?
1: Well, I think it's because those patients are actually being heard. Like you're able to actually come around to a solution because now you're hearing each other. Like you're getting to a point where now you can speak the same language. Um, So I think it's that. And um, the other really interesting bit is like, there's another study that in um, like general practice visits, patients who received displays of empathy actually had positive immune system changes. We recover from the common cold more quickly when our doctor empathizes with us.
0: That's wild. (laughs) That's crazy. And, And I think even like in your world, Derek like in mm-hmm. and sales like it's the connection and I guess another way of saying this Taylor, and correct me if I'm wrong is like when you build a connection you build trust is that fair yeah I think so and so and like in your world like or at least a
1: foundation for trust like okay. maybe trust is not there immediately yeah. but you've got a foundation from which trust can be built
0: okay and which is huge in your world right because like right. if a person's calling you they are obviously expecting that or they're hoping they can trust you to fix a problem mm-hmm. and you're trying mm-hmm. to let them know I'm guessing yeah through the empathy, like, yeah making that connection, which you can't trust me.
2: Yeah. We're the, we're the expert, you know, we, we are the person that knows the most about that situation, hopefully, you know, from both sides, the writer side and the, and the business side. Um, yeah. And that's the, you know, having empathy in, in every situation that, that I deal with is, is, is key to, to making, you know, you know, connections with, with those writers and those, those past, present, future, future customers. So, it's um yeah it definitely helps to get get to the point and, and, and get you know a situation fixed you know some sometimes you know there are, are you know as a as a human you know we're we're kind of self centered a little bit so being able to open up and 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 you know kind of put yourself in the other person's shoes definitely helps um, in my position in my job because um, you know nobody wants to have something that's that's broken or not working mm-hmm. or anything like that. And it's, it's, it's hard to be vulnerable, you know, if you have no idea about, you know, anything, you know, we've got people on daily, like, I don't know anything about bikes. I'm sorry. Apologizing. And it's like, no, that's what we're here for. We're here to help. We're here to listen. We're here to, mm. to get you what you want, um, and, and get you out and going.
1: I think what you said too, about like, um, putting yourself in the other person's shoes too, truly, because at least my impression of a lot of what happens on social media is that we don't actually see a lot of like put puts us in another person's shoes. We're sort of fed more of what we've already looked at to some degree. And maybe that drives some of this polarization. And I think when you're, when you're attempting to share empathy with another person, um, then you're actually kind of creating a little bit of a counter narrative of like, you know, sometimes people will message in Derek and his like instant reaction is to be like, Oh, this is like so frustrating. And I'm like, or what else could be going on? And, like, what could what could the other story be to, yeah. like, help them maybe create a counter-narrative so it's a little bit easier to forge some empathy if that's not our gut instinct?
0: Yeah, yeah. We literally just um, – those that listen to this know well, – they listen regularly know that I, I teach at a church. And so it's like we right now are going through a Relationally Healthy series and we're pulling from – I get a lot of, of, of wisdom from a guy named Pete Cazero. And he talks about the – well – there's just a lot of talk around the fact that we're narrative creatures. And so we cannot not tell ourselves stories like you, you can't nobody. Everyone is trying to make sense of the world by building stories in their head. And you have to, you have to first off catch the story that you're telling yourself about the other person. Cause you are telling yourself a story and you have to, if you're trying to, and at least in marriages relationships, you better check that story with somebody else. And if you can't always do that, which is probably in a sales or whatever else you can say, Hey, here's a story I'm telling myself. Is this true? But you can look and try to think of another perspective of like exactly what you just said is like, hey, okay, maybe this person didn't do this because they're just an absolute snake. Yeah. You know, like maybe that's, maybe it's not just that they're a freaking like idiot or they're absolutely evil or whatever else it is. Like maybe, and, and, you know, I've shared before when I worked at Arkansas counseling, I worked there for five years and I worked with a demographic that, uh, I say this like with shame, like I, that I used to kind of judge, you know, because I just didn't understand that demographic. And then it's like you start spending time with them and you hear their stories, and you're like, "Oh, if I grew up just like that, or if I had a parent just like that, like I probably would have been exactly where they were, if not even worse off than where yeah. they were." And then you're able to begin to at least get some empathy. Um, and so, I think that's huge what you said, and and I think this is important for people to hear too, like. You can, understanding somebody is not the same as agreeing with somebody. And so I think sometimes people are afraid of like, well, I can't put myself in their place because I don't agree with what they did. And it's like, well, we're not asking you to agree with what they did. We're not asking you to even agree with anything they did, but you still need to understand and try to empathize. So um, that's huge. Anything else that y'all would add? to that at all or specifically around grief, Taylor? Um, I don't know if you finished saying everything that you were wanting to say around how y'all help families deal with that or not. Anything else you can think of?
1: I mean, I, I don't know how much it's helpful to go into, but I think what you and I were talking about before with like, um, when you are someone who is, um, you know, really trying to drive empathic connection with other people, how draining that can be Uh and, um, trying to find ways to not necessarily take that grief or that emotion on as your own, but really being present with it. And then also sort of, um, you know, seeing it and like letting it come over you and then moving on with your day, because the reality is like, Unfortunately, I don't just tell bad news one time a day. Like, I have multiple clinic visits throughout the day, and most of those families are hearing something that they had hoped they would not have to hear that day.
0: Yeah, yeah. and what you're talking about is, I think in the counseling world, they would call that attunement. And so you don't want to be enmeshed, and you don't want to be detached. So enmeshed is you literally are, like, getting wrapped up in their feelings. Like, everything they're feeling, you're now feeling yourself. And you can't shake. Like, you can't not feel that until they're not feeling it anymore. It's a mesh. And then detached is, uh, like, you're just cold. Like, yeah. you can't feel. You're not even, like, with them at all in this. And then attunement is what you're talking about, being able to, to feel what they're feeling in that moment, but, like, not being controlled by it yourself. Yeah. And being able to kind of then go into the next room. Yeah. With everyone, like, hey, hello, how are you? And not be, like, you know, totally controlled by what just happened. Is there a skill, like is that something that you're still learning or do you feel like you've already kind of – mastered that
1: oh I don't think I don't know I don't think anybody ever masters that honestly Um, because we are like connection driven people I think it's I think probably one of the extremes happens right of what you were describing where we either probably like internalize it and do sort of take it on as as our own to some degree or we become totally detached and we're just like I can't even deal with that so Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna put it over in the corner Um, so it's it's something that I continue to learn and when we get to rapid fire one of the books I'm reading is about trauma stewardship and like how to care for yourself whenever you're a witness to trauma, even if it wasn't maybe your own trauma. Um, And like, at least at work, I rely on a lot of rituals too, like in between my patient encounters to help me with that of like, when I go back to the team room, like, you know, kind of putting those thoughts away from that encounter and then thinking about the next encounter. And I actually physically do like a little shake off motion Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. I go into the next room as sort of like a mental and physical clearing of like, okay, I was totally present in that last bit. And that was hard. And like, now I'm going to be totally present in this bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so Derek knows like my clinics always run behind, but I honestly don't really think the families care that much because I'm always, I always tell them like, sorry, I'm 20 minutes late. And also when I'm here with you, like, I will be nowhere else. Yeah,
0: that's really good. Like I'm fully present to you. Have you read uh the book When the Body Keeps a Score? No. The the score? Have you heard of it? I
1: actually have it on my audio book okay. list, like on yeah. the we still use the Seattle Public Library <laughs> app, even though we don't live in Seattle yeah, anymore. Yeah. But I have it like as a free download right now.
0: Yeah, you talk about trauma, uh, and Derek, you would know this with your your past in fighting fires and you know, being obviously a firefighter, you guys had to deal with trauma right. a lot of it. Correct. Uh and y'all just experienced trauma in your own house, yes. which we don't have to go into, but right. like um
1: we can go there if we need to
0: <laughs> well yeah super traumatic experience and I'm curious like what have y'all learned about how to deal with trauma because again because of the world we live in everyone's going to experience trauma and I'm amazed by how many people I meet with that are like I've never experienced trauma and then you start listening to their story and you're like huh, uh yeah you have and so the and and with what we talk about here, there's big T trauma, little T trauma, right? Yeah. So big T trauma is like a shotgun blast to the chest, you know what I mean? It's like abuse, it's death, it's divorce, it's all these different things, cancer or whatever, and it's like, and then there's little T trauma. And those are, not maybe not like a, a shotgun blast to the chest, but it's like a thousand paper cuts sometimes. Yeah. And that's can be just as devastating to your, your health. So we all experience trauma, some way, shape, or form. I'm curious, maybe even as you come out of kind of one of the last traumas that you've experienced, like how do you deal with that? How do we deal with that in a healthy way?
1: Do you want to give the Cliff's Notes version of the trauma too, so that we're not being so? You got vague. to now, <laughs> because if you're like no, people are gonna be like, oh well, thanks Shut a
0: lot.
2: About yeah. It. yeah. So uh, we we host people. That's kind of a, a thing that Taylor likes to do. So we have a we ha- have a house with with multiple rooms. So we had some friends over um, that we met from in Seattle. So they came from some Seattle to some that have moved to Ohio. Anyway, we, they, we were in our, our for basement. Thanksgiving. Yeah, for we were
1: hosting like Friendsgiving.
2: Mm-hmm. and we were we were down in the basement. And I have a virtual reality thing that doesn't get much use. So I was like, "Hey, let's break this out and let's do some you know some virtual boxing." So we had a friend. Um, we have a friend. Have a friend. Sorry, we have a friend <laughs> who. So now we know
0: where that's going. <laughs> <with. Yes>. Yeah, <laughs> Yep.
2: Yeah, he's alive. Um, yeah. So we were we were doing some virtual boxing. Um, had a congenital heart uh, defect.
1: He was born um, with a heart difference. Uh, yep.
2: So whenever he finished his boxing match, he, you know, said, oh, that was tiring. And then just collapsed on our floor Yeah. and uh, a little bit of CPR and um, lots of times and some shocks. And he was in the hospital and breathing and talking and moving, so
0: yeah and that's definitely the cliff notes version because you told me the other one and it was much messier right. and <laughs> scarier than that right. and you know I, I shared with you how whenever my brother had a seizure when I was in ninth grade how yeah. I didn't go back in that bathroom for a long mm. time mm-hmm. you know um, and we just never talked about it as a family mm-hmm. like it just you and, and, you know not to fault my parents I don't think they just never were trained in any of that kind of stuff yeah. but it seemed like the less we talked about it uh the worse it got you know and so it I would say at least a big part of dealing with trauma, and I'd like to hear from you guys, is learning how to even tell that story you just told. Mm-hmm. Thank you for for telling that, by the way. Telling the story in itself is very therapeutic and can actually help. But uh, Anything else you would say to those who maybe experienced a traumatic experience, like how do you deal with it in a healthy way?
1: I guess one thing that sort of came about for each of us, because both of us have dealt with cardiac arrest in very different settings. So Mm -hmm. for me, cardiac arrest looks like a hospital code and that's a, you know, sort of a controlled chaos and people have their roles and we have a very standardized way of dealing with that. Derek had seen cardiac arrest in homes as a firefighter um, and going in, in like a paramedic role. Um, And so just recognizing that like we both felt some trauma, from that episode, but mm-hmm. we had very different views of what was traumatic to us. And so for me, it was, you know, where the cardiac arrest had happened and that this was my safe place. This was my home. It wasn't supposed, you know, if I'm on call, sure. My yeah, brain hospital's is there, the place brain where brain was, all that sickness yes, and stuff is not yes, here. Yeah. Yes. And for Derek, it was, you know, he expected it to be in homes, but for him it was our home. And so mm-hmm. now how do you yeah. like recreate a sense of like calm and comfort in your own house whenever that was so scary. And so both of us needed to sort of recreate an environment of calm in our house and figure out how to deal with that. But it was for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it sort of goes back to like listening and creating this counter narrative, because if I just assumed that Derek was dealing with the same thing I was or vice versa, I think we could have kind of been like ships in the night as far as the understanding of mm. what we were processing from it. Mm.
2: That's good. Yeah, we definitely, we, we dealt with it independently but together as well um you know it was it was that's where I work from so you know my my desk was five feet away from where it happened so you know it took some time to to get back downstairs and do you know do my normal work from there um uh, but yeah with a little bit of rearranging of furniture and, and doing some stuff I'm, I'm down there again so um yeah so it was great to to work with Taylor you know in our own ways and, and get everything taken care of for us yeah. yeah
1: we were definitely like you and to some degree we still are like we didn't really want to go in that room or you know put ourselves back in that environment. Um, and actually I think to start to build back that idea that our house is not a scary place, but it could be a safe place, or maybe Mm. it's a place actually where people come for healing, even though it's not what I felt Mm. like at Mm. the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, that's also been really helpful is to, to actually build a counter narrative about our trauma Mm. of like, maybe my house is not a place where people collapse, but maybe my my house is a place where people get resuscitated and they live.
0: The, that's fantastic yeah because that's when trauma happens again you're going to build a narrative and oftentimes when what calls to wait the, the nature of trauma from the way i understand it you don't have time to really make sense of it because you're in fight or flight and so it's like if um you know if all of a sudden uh whatever i don't know they poison a snake or a, a lion or whatever some sort of apex predator came in here we're not going to be logically trying to just like have a conversation all of a sudden yeah and be like, well, what, what do you think would be best to do? Like, we're going to go into fight or flight, right? And it's not going to be logical and it's going to be crazy. And so, and there's going to be things that form. And so it's the same way with trauma. And I love that idea of like, okay, now that it's over, my, my brain did process that in a way. Yeah. And probably not in the, always the healthiest way or the truest way. So now I can come back and I'm in a, in a calm state with other people. And I can process that as it really happened. And maybe even flip the script a little bit. Yeah, It's fantastic. What's next for you guys? You're obviously, uh, in Wisconsin right now, like what – you have any idea or is it just kind of like wait and see to be determined –
1: Hopefully we're here for a few years in Wisconsin. So the, I guess I never really finished this, but the, like once I completed my fellowship training, which was our last bit in Seattle. So we lived in Seattle for six years for residency and fellowship. This is my first like true attending job. I'm no longer a medical trainee after a decade, um, which is really wonderful. So hopefully we can actually Uh spend a little bit of a longer period in Madison and, you know, kind of put down some roots there and find community.
2: Yeah. I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> if we're there, we're there, if we move. We'll see what happens.
0: Man, that's why y'all make a good team, man. <laughs> so really uh glad that we got to hang out. I'd love to end with some rapid fire questions mm-hmm. as we do every single episode. Um, this is the hardest part. I'm just gonna warn you guys, okay, of the whole thing. Who we gonna who we wanna start with? You? Do Derek, you want me to go first? first okay. Yeah. All right, here we go, Taylor. Ready? <laughs> what is either the last movie or show you watched or book you read?
1: Yeah, there's two books that I'm reading right now. This is going to give you a lot of insight into my personality because it's both that trauma stewardship book and it's Prince Harry's Memoir.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> hmm. Prince Henry's Memoir. Harry, me... Harry. Oh, Harry. Henry oh, sorry. Henry Prince Harry. Harry, of course. <laughs> this One is of answer. my favorite princes. <laughs> <laughs> he's young. he's younger
2: than you, uh, Jared. Oh, <laughs> uh, no? It was, still in my face. It, was the, it was the fastest
1: selling uh, book in Britain, I think, in, all, in yeah. all of history. Their history. Yeah. I I have a little bit of, uh, like, I don't know. I get a little bit of, like, obsessive interests, too. And uh-huh. I have a similar. So all the royals I'm, like, pretty interested in. Okay. And just this idea, you know, that by being born into something that you uh-huh. would I- inherit this just kind of wild yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, it's too like an episode of empathy too. Like how could, it seems really, really difficult to look at somebody with that sort of like money and privilege and fame and whatever, and then be like, Really? You don't like, like, this sucks for you? Are you mm-hmm. sure? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't mm-hmm. know. It's just sort of intre- It's like a little bit of detachment and it's mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of grounding of some of the things that I think about on a regular basis. Yeah, that's fantastic.
0: I do love you, it. Great Do you fall
2: on the side of uh, the people who are like, he's a traitor or do you <laughs> fall more on his side?
1: No, I'm like, I'm actually pretty neutral, I think. Are you? Yeah. That's good.
2: <laughs> Yeah, That's balanced.
1: Good. Along for the ride, like yeah. Along says. for the yeah. ride.
0: What about you, Derek? Uh, last book you read, or last movie or show you watch?
2: Books don't read those. Um, shows. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's not true. We listen to an audio book on no, the way down. True. That's like the only <laughs> way I can get him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Last show, it, it might have been because of Taylor the the interviews and the things with Prince Harry. Uh, <laughs>
0: oh. Did you enjoy it?
1: <laughs> yeah it was it was
2: interesting. It was You're good. all in on this. Brants.
1: We do a lot of docu-series oh stuff, yeah, too, in our
2: docuseries. house. Docu-series, yeah, that's a, a big thing. So
1: The other know. one we watched was the Playboy docu-series.
2: Was that good? <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd go watch it together. I think that was actually the most recent one that we Probably watched. Probably so, yeah. <laughs> Is that Netflix? Uh, Hulu? I think it's Hulu. Hulu. There's oh. one of, like, Victoria's Secret and Playboy, which it sounds, like, really dirty. It's not actually really dirty. It's more this idea of, like... Um, yeah, well, uh, I feel a lot of, of draw to um, female empowerment and like mm-hmm. how are the ways that patriarchy sort of presents mm-hmm. itself in our regular society. And um, th- those are some really interesting stories. Yeah. Of I figure that's ways the same reason that that a lot of people are watching those. Yeah.
0: Those yeah. series. Yeah. Um, favorite band. We're going to start with you, Derek. I'm going to guess Hawk Nelson.
1: (laughs) That is the only Christmas album he will listen to. And (laughs) I love Christmas music, but I'm like, I can only do Hawk Nelson so many times, Derek. I mean, 2002 me, yeah, probably so. (laughs) Uh,
2: Now I'm much more into um, adult lullabies, uh, Joshua Raiden, Jack Johnson, that kind of stuff. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, that's uh, definitely in the specialized world, right? Those things go hand in hand, it seems
2: like. Yeah, whenever I bought my first bike with you. Uh, Jack Johnson banana
1: pancakes That's
2: on the it. radio. That's it, man.
0: Yep. I remember those days. That's great. What about you? Favorite band?
1: So mine is actually like Derek's, but with like a twang, um, which is Brandy Carlisle. I love Brandy
0: Carlisle. Hey, we just, uh, just got I don't set. know. I guess it's coming out probably mm. the week after. Uh, but uh Loran the last episode just said
1: we mm, saw Brandy Carlisle in Milwaukee this past summer, one of the really best good, shows huh? we've ever been to. Wow. She's
2: Excellent. actually from outside of Seattle.
1: Yeah. Really? But she sounds like me. It's a miracle. I How was hoping
0: you <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you would say TWP.
2: Oh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I did have that one shirt.
0: Yeah. yeah so you I, know.
1: Sh- I, I also had a little project shirt. Did you really? make makes you feel any better? Yeah. That's awesome.
0: You don't have it anymore?
1: I don't think I kept it, Jared. Sorry, okay. that's all right. it didn't that's make fine. the move I've across the country. Yeah, yeah I've, I've got
0: one in an XL. <laughs> if it hit, inter- sign it y'all. for us. <laughs> yeah, it's all. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, what is? We're gonna start with you in this one, Taylor. What is your favorite meal?
1: I so. We talked about Thanksgiving. I love to cook Thanksgiving food for people, and I also really love to enjoy it. Um, And part of the reason that we're here in town, of course, is because Derek's grandma Mm -hmm. just passed away, and she um, had this... Notorious incredible recipe for monkey bread. It was like her yeast oh, roll bread. Wow, and nice. several years ago, after we moved to Seattle and we were having holidays alone, I called her and said, "Like, can you please give me the monkey bread recipe so I can make it for Derek?" And That's making cool. Thanksgiving dinner and including monkey bread is like the best meal that I can That's think really of, cool. and, and I enjoy cooking it for everybody.
0: That's awesome, Tyler. Love that. What about you? Your favorite meal?
2: Um, anything with a tortilla. Um, anything
1: he's all about the Tex-Mex
0: we're having that tomorrow night at our house too bad you'll be back home
1: yep we might stay for that (laughs) (laughs) it's
0: only an eight hour drive right (laughs) yeah Yeah. okay Uh, what is on your nightstand right now
2: just remotes (laughs) multiple remotes yeah
1: Uh, so two magazines that I subscribe to. One is like the Madison magazine because we're trying to learn about the community there. And then the other one is Southern Living. I think I'm the only Mm. person in Madison, Wisconsin who has a Southern Living subscription, but it's part of where I get my recipes from.
0: Fantastic. Hey, (laughs) uh, give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy.
1: Anytime we are like, outside in our yard with our dog, and we're Mm. doing something super mundane, like snow shoveling, or Mm. putting up Christmas lights, or, you know, like, redoing the flower beds, Mm. and it's, you know, just me, Derek, and the dog, and we're chilling, and it's, like, totally mundane, and also, like, the the best place that I could be, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. What about you, Derek?
2: Uh, I would say same for me, but let's. we're going to go inside on the couch (laughs) by the fireplace, yeah. Watching the series.
1: with a glass of wine.
0: Excellent. You
2: got to go to a go-to <laughs> glass of wine. Just a red.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, last question. Start with you, Derek. Mm. What is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now?
2: Mm. I would say family and friends. You know, mm. it's it's. Uh, it seems like we've leaned on them a lot in the last few months, and mm. it's good. It's good. It's good to have that mm-hmm. in our life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah that, um, I guess what I would just nail it down a little bit more to is like connection with those people. Derek's a little bit more introverted than I, but both of us generally go a little bit further on the introvert scale. And so we're not necessarily the people who are going to go out and make tons of friends or, you know, have multiple contacts. And so just realizing that maybe sometimes it's quality over quantity Mm -hmm. um, that has a lot of value to us, I think.
2: Yeah, agree.
0: yeah it's super cool he was telling me just even we will talked about it just now on Thanksgiving the fact that you had friends that flew to your house from Seattle and others that drove in from or drove in from Ohio like that's super cool like that's not normative you know and so that's a testimony type of friend that obviously I've been to them as well but that's uh, yeah that gives me something to aspire uh, to be as well my own friendships relationships is a friend like that that others are like hey, yeah willing to travel across so um, well done in that world It's good to be able to hang out with you guys. It really is. So I guess it'd been what, eight years. Good to hang out again. So I'm glad you hit me up. Uh, first about Zeke and Mm -hmm. then like I'm in town let's So out right let's get
2: get straightened
0: out his frustration
1: level is so high I understand if that's what it takes to get us connected again that's great acknowledgement (laughs) naming oh you sound really angry
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I did that with him I was just kind (laughs) of like oh my bad (laughs) there
1: was some exploration I'm like what is it about Jared saying that it was Zeke and not you that's got you so upset (laughs) you
0: go therapist all of a sudden full blown (laughs) Oh, that's awesome well love you guys thank y'all so much for coming in hopefully we get to uh, connect again before the next eight years
2: yeah 2030.
0: <laughs> for those of you who are tuning in thanks so much for listening if you've not done so please check us out on different social media platforms uh facebook instagram also we're on spotify and itunes and if you've not already done so please give us a five star rating on itunes that helps people to find us more quickly and learn about the incredible people living right here in Paragold. so as always thanks for listening until next time